in a future election, it's a one-man show. Yair Lapid today is the unequivocal leader of the center-left bloc and basically of the largest party. He brought Yeshatid, his party, up from 19 to 24 seats. He grew in a significant way. And whenever the next election will take place, he'll be able to say, look, it's me against Bibi. Forget about the small parties. Now it's just about me. So finally, Israel has what appears to be a stable government. After five elections in 44 months, it looks like there will not be a sixth election around the corner. That's the good news, although there are a lot of questions about some of the political figures that will be populating it, who have a history of some pretty inflammatory rhetoric and actions. We'll dive into this issue, as well as what it means for Netanyahu's ability to manage his new government, and what are the geopolitical issues he's going to have to deal with, and all these considerations he's going to have to balance, from Iran to Russia-Ukraine, to his relationship with Washington, to his relationships with the broader Arab world and continued normalization. To help us understand these issues, we are joined by Yaakov Katz, editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post, who's been on this podcast before. Before becoming editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post, Yaakov served as the paper's military reporter and defense analyst. He's the author of Shadow Strike, Inside Israel's Secret Mission to Eliminate Syrian Nuclear Power. And he's the co-author of two books, Weapon Wizards, How Israel Became a High-Tech Military Superpower, and Israel versus Iran, The Shadow War. Earlier in his career, Yaakov was a top advisor to Naftali Bennett, who until recently was the prime minister of Israel. This is Call Me Back. And I am pleased to welcome back to the podcast my friend Yaakov Katz, editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post, who comes to us from Jerusalem. Uh, after, I'm sure, a lot of sleepless nights, he's been working around the clock. JPost.com has been covering this uh, election and the post-election intensely. Yaakov, thanks for being here. Great to be with you, Dan. Uh, okay, so we, we have a lot to cover. Let's start with what, in your view, is the biggest story or the biggest surprise coming out of this election? Well, I think there are two main stories here. The first is Benjamin Netanyahu had an amazing comeback. He's the comeback kid, right? He's been out now for 18 months. Israel has been through, this is the fifth election in the last three and a half years. He failed each time, each previous election, to get to the needed 61 seats to have a majority coalition in, in parliament in the Knesset. And, and he pulled it off. And he pulled it off against a lot of odds and a lot of people who were out to get him. Uh, and that has to be said. This is a big win for him, right? 64 uh, majority is big. People thought it might be 60-60. People said maybe he'll get to 61. No pollster predicted this outcome. And it's big. And that has to be said, and he's going to be coming in with with strength. the The other big story, and 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 it should be noted, and it should be noted before the election, when there was there was a big question: Would it be sixty? Would right. it be sixty one? Would it be fifty nine? I mean, I was in Israel a little over a week ago, and people were talking as though it were a realistic option before the election that Netanyahu may have to form a national unity government. That Netanyahu would have to form a government with some version of Gantz and Lapid and. That that's how that I'm just making I mean just to put an exclamation point after your point it, it's like that's how 
the degree to which people had not foreseen or, this or scenario. Or, Dan, we were going to go to a sixth election. People, have, people were talking about how this is the gateway to right. the sixth election, right? So no one <laughs> right, expected right. such a big win for, for Bibi. And, and, and this joins, this connects to the next part, which is the big story, which is, you know, there's Itamar Ben-Gvir, which a big spotlight has been put on this guy uh, as the firebrand kind of far-right member of the potential Netanyahu government. But but let's also just put into context, this is going to be the most right-wing government in Israeli history. This is going to be the most religious government in Israeli history. There, there are 18, 19 seats of the ultra-Orthodox. You add to it the 14 seats of the religious Zionist Smutrich Ben-Gvir party. That is 32 seats of uh, religious people in a coalition. They are the majority of, of this coalition. And, and that says something about just if you are a secular Israeli today in this country, you're probably a bit concerned right now. But, and I want to get to this. We will get to this. We, we were talking about it earlier. We, we, we'll get to it in, the, in this conversation. The fact that it is, the, this new government is populated by uh, leaders so ideologically in this direction does not necessarily mean that's where the electorate right. is, right? It's also hiccups in the in the um, electoral system. Okay, so Bibi's comeback is the big story. Uh, ben Gvir and the rise of Ben Gvir. And can you just explain a little bit about the rise of Ben Gvir? Because th- this is a, a guy who, in recent elections, there was always a question about whether or not they'd even he'd even meet the threshold to get into the Knesset. So he's gone from, you know not that long ago, a, a total gadfly to a kingmaker. Yeah, look, Ben Gvir was someone who for many years didn't make it into the Knesset. He He's a rabble rouser. He's a guy, I've known him, Dan, for over 20 years. I've known him from, from right-wing demonstrations, from during the Gaza Strip disengagement. He was the guy who you would call as a reporter to find out, okay, where are people going to be protesting tonight? Where, where are people going to be doing something a bit nuts and crazy? <laughs> that was what this guy was. And, he, and, 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 you know, he he's a jovial character. He's fun. He he's got a good personality, but he's a right wing extremist. I mean, you know, put it into into its proper context and and explain what that means. I mean, what do you basically mean? Basically, what that means is because because by the way, in the West, the term Israeli right wing extremist is thrown around a lot before Ben Gvir. Right. I mean, right, nineteen seventy seven, Menachem Begin is elected prime minister, first time Likud takes, you know, power in, in Israel, the cover of Time magazine, trouble in the promised land, you know, and they made, turned Begin into this, oh my God, right. Israel is completely set back. Uh, obviously, when Sharon came back to power, this was, it was also treated like this was a, this was, you know, he was going to be a wrecking ball in the Middle East. Avigdor Lieberman, we've talked about, uh, former foreign minister, foreign defense minister, he's the finance current minister, finance right, in the current government. Yeah. Uh yeah, and he, uh, you know, he was, he was, he ran on, you know, loyalty tests for Israeli Arab citizens and, you know, the death penalty for terrorists and which is just, is current, it's not the policy in Israel and positions that were viewed as very inflammatory regardless of, uh, you know, whether or not he actually believed these things. He ran on these issues and, and then, the, you know, within three years of Begin getting elected, Israel had a peace deal with, Egypt, you know, right. Ariel Sharon was the prime minister that pulled Israel out of Gaza. Uh, Avigdor Lieberman has now become oppositional to uh, to Netanyahu and not from the right. Mm-hmm. So th- 
the it's term right wing. <laughs> yeah, well, no, no, but the term right wing right, Israeli has kind of been thrown yeah. around for a long time, and then it doesn't always stick the way it's initially, you know, characterized. So I just want to put Ben Gvir in that historical context. Now, look, unless Ben Gvir makes a dramatic shift and changes in a huge 180, what I mean by that term is he is someone who all the people you mentioned before, they do believe to an extent in coexistence. They believe in a some sort of resolution to the conflict that Israel still has with the Palestinian people. Ben Gvir talks about something much simpler, which is we need to restore deterrence. We need to scare them. They need to have the fear of God and of the Jewish people and the state of Israel in them. He has a different vision for what that looks like. He wants to, and he openly says this, right? He said this in an interview just a couple weeks ago, right before the election, where he said, I want to establish in the new government a ministry of migration. I want to find a way to get Palestinian Arabs in Israel and in the West Bank, Judea and Samaria to move outside of Israel. And he was asked what does that mean? Where would they go? Who would take them? He said, well, Europe needs, and in the term in Hebrew, so I'll just translate, he said, Europe needs working hands. And I'm watching this on TV, and I'm saying to myself, working hands in Europe? Like, was it not that long ago that we were told as the Jewish people that we need to go work somewhere in Europe? Uh, you know, and and the silence that you hear is is what has legitimized this uh, this type of rhetoric and and it's a different level, Dan. It's not Begin. It's not Sharon. And you know it, what's funny is when I say to people, BB is going to be the most left wing member of their government of this government. They think it's crazy because to them, BB is so right wing, but he's actually not. And and Ben Veer is the not, real deal. BB's very practical. Exactly. BB. Yeah. This idea that BB's an ideologue, I've always found like laughable. There's not. How can you say? I mean. Longest serving prime minister in Israeli history. So he has, Netanyahu has this very clear track record to look at how he deals with crisis after crisis after crisis, geopolitical crises, local domestic political crises. I mean, you can dislike Bibi, you can have issues with a whole range of issues around Bibi, but the idea that he's some adventuristic, you know, bomb throwing ideologue is right. just inconsistent with the record. He's no, actually no. pretty moderate. He's moderate. He's hesitant to use force. He said multiple. I mean, another thing that people for you know they think like he's you know, the greater Israel again. He's, he just wants the the so called occupation. He wants to occupy the Palestinian people. All that kind of stuff. The guy has had numerous opportunities to pass the legislation in the Knesset with a majority that would allow him to annex and apply Israeli law to the West Bank, and he's never done it. And and the reason is because he doesn't want to do it because ultimately he he wants some sort of resolution that sees Israel not have to be in control of millions of Palestinian Arabs. That's not what Netanyahu wants. This government, though, and this is where I think we need to, you know, kind of be maybe slightly concerned, is is a different animal right now. This is a new government where, because of how right-wing it is, and because of Netanyahu's political, I'm sorry, legal uh, situation, he's still on trial for fraud, breach of trust, and corruption— this is where it gets complicated because he's going to want potentially legislation that will help his trial, and the other members of this government are going to want some sort of you know benefit on their side, and that could come in turn in 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 the way of annexation, in the way of undermining the rule of law, undermining the courts, changing the balance of separation of powers in this country. There's a lot that these guys could potentially go for. Okay, can you briefly describe? 
Netanyahu's where his legal process stands because you referenced it and it obviously is a factor in in all his decision making here. Look, Netanyahu's trial is still continuing. Uh, they've heard a lot of the testimony already in the case of 4,000, which is there's three cases 1,000, 2,000, and 4,000. 4,000 is the bribery charge, the one that involved potential regulatory benefits to merge a telecommunications company and a satellite TV company, yes, and Bezek a bunch of years ago in exchange for positive coverage and what was known as Walla. That's this very popular uh, Israeli Hebrew web- news website. Um, they finished the testimony on that. They're hearing testimony and evidence now in case 1000, which is the gift, the, the graft probe. Um, that's one where he got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of shekels and dollars, I guess, of uh, champagne and cigars and jewelry from different businessmen, particularly to Arnon Milchin and James Packer. And case 2000 is still out there. That's the one where he potentially, uh, he allegedly kind of engaged in a maybe bribery scheme with the publisher of Yediot Ahronot, another uh, very large Hebrew newspaper in this country. So there's still some time. It's rolling along. It's going to take time. There's a lot of evidence, a lot of uh, witnesses, but it's it's a thorn in Netanyahu's side, right? And he, he, I mean, you know, three cases, severe corruption charges. He would love to be able to find a way to to get this thing to go away. Right. And, and, and he might and use so his coalition to do that. So how does one do that? Look, th- there's something that we call uh, in Hebrew, the French law. Right. <laughs> what is the French law? There's a lot of French laws. But the French law is that the French have uh, have a law that you can't uh, investigate a prime minister while in office for alleged corruption charges that took place while he, while that politician is in office. So Israel does not have a law like that. And therefore, you can be prime minister and you can come under investigation. We all know, Dan, I mean, you know, you know, as well as I do, all of our prime ministers pretty much have been under investigation in the last, uh, you know, 20 years or so. And Ehud Omer w- went to jail. And Ehud Omer eventually went to jail. Right? His crimes, though, right. were crimes that were committed before he became prime minister when he was mayor of Jerusalem. Right. Um, so they, they could pass that law and that law could potentially also go retroactive and it could then make the press force the prosecution to stop the trial. Now, he has said repeatedly during the campaign, Netanyahu, that he wouldn't allow any legal changes correct, uh, or new laws passed on, uh, that would affect him that would be retroactive. But you, some people believe that was just, well, you know. He said he wouldn't want it, and he's not asking him right. for it. But some of the coalition partners or potential coalition partners, uh, particularly Betzal Smutrich, who is the head of the of the party with um, with Itamar Ben-Gvir, of the Religious Zionist Party, has said that he is going to bring that type of legislation. He's also going to bring another very controversial bill, which is to basically annul the, the, the charge or the crime of breach of trust and fraud from political corruption. So basically, what in the middle of a corruption, in the middle of a political corruption trial, the, the legislator would change the law, say this, this is no longer a crime, so what, what does the court do? They can't continue a trial. Even if they say it's not retroactive, there's no crime to 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 have a court case about. So it would just leave case 4000, which is anyhow perceived to be maybe a a, a, a case that has some holes in it. Um, basically, I, I, I don't and think And it's that, the slowest moving one. Correct. And, I, and that's the slowest yeah. moving one. And I also don't think that Netanyahu, if these guys bring this legislation, I don't think he's going to say, no, I don't want it. Right? Of course he's going to want it because it right. would benefit him. Right. Right. Okay. So, so bringing these political leaders into the fold, you know, is is helpful to him on the legal front. But he's an adult. He's a 
is a long history uh, and long track record of, as I said earlier, uh, as experience as a, as a as a as a senior statesman, as a geopolitical strategist, and he's got now he's now back in the seat. He's no longer in the opposition, so he's got to manage a lot of big problems. He's got to deal with Iran. Right. He's got to figure out, you know, what Israel's strategy is vis-a-vis Gaza. He's got to deal with Russia, Ukraine. Uh, and obviously he's going to have to deal with Washington, mm-hmm. and he's going to have to deal with these Gulf states that he put so much effort into normalizing relations with. So how does how does he hold this all together? He's got a man, because you've said he used to be the most, you know, or, or for the first, he used to be in between the left and the right in his coalitions, right. and now he's actually the most left-wing member of, of his coalition for the first time. So he's going to have to manage those internal dynamics where there's huge pressure from the right while he's dealing with all these real prime ministerial day, you know, jobs in his day job of kind of dealing with the world. It's not going to be an easy juggling act. Uh, and, and, I, and I would say this is not the government that Netanyahu would have ideally wanted, right? He would have wanted a government. He can have someone who looks good, who's moderate, who could go and be the face of Israel to Washington. You know, he's had a Barack in the government before, Tsipi Livni. He likes to have those kind of figures next to him because they, they balance it out. And he's always, he's got, it's like a fig leaf to, to, to the rest of, to the West, so-called, right? And to democratic administrations, which is what we so, have. So in just, just, just our listeners. So, so Ehud Barak, former prime minister of Israel in the late nineties, actually beat Netanyahu. Right. Uh, in 99. Yeah. yeah. 1999. And was leader of the labor party. And then Netanyahu comes back to power close to a decade after losing to Barack, and he makes Barack defense minister right. and brings him into the government. So to your point, it really was a not bipartisan, multi-partisan uh, coalition government, and he had someone perceived as to the left of him as his defense minister. Tsipi Livni was a player in the in the Kadima party, the moderate party, also right. very at the time, oppositional to Likud, and he had her in the coalition. So he's always liked having a blend of this kind of hard right, right, and left in the government. And you're saying now he he's always had that, and he now for he the doesn't first time, have does that. Have so it. so it's gonna it's gonna make things difficult for him. And you know, like who do you send to talk to the Blinken? Who do you send to talk to Jake Sullivan? Who do you send to Europe? Right. Uh, when when they're gonna when the when the Americans and the Europeans are gonna be asking Israel about the Palestinians, wh- what do you say? There's no one in government who is of the moderate kind of cloth, right? That you could say, no, th- we're actually, you know, yeah, we have disagreements. No, there's no disagreements. Everyone's pushing you in one direction, and 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 that's gonna put a pressure on him. By the way, I mean, you know, the Palestinians are not saying this publicly, but they're not they're not upset about this government, even though it's so right wing, because for them. Until now, because it's always been a government in Israel that kind of plays the game, maybe from their perspective, and says the right thing, but doesn't maybe act on it enough for the Palestinians. But it's good enough for Washington. It's good enough for London. It's good enough for Paris. Um, it, the Palestinians are kind of in a weaker position. But today, with this such a right wing government, the Palestinians will be able to say, "Look, we've told you these guys are not a peace partner." And Israel has always been able to say, "No, we are the partner. We want peace. We're our hand is stretched out." Netanyahu won't be able to do that today. What's he going to be able to say? I'm in favor of a two-state solution with Itamar Ben-Gvir and Betzal Smutrich and his government. He's not going to be able to say that. Right. He could never deliver the equivalent of the Bar Ilan speech in this environment. Never again. And and that is going to be something that, by the way, 
this is what the people of Israel chose. And if the people and the majority of Israel asked for this government, so if this government decides, for example, and they will have the ability, Dan, to pass legislation to apply Israeli law and annex the West Bank and Judea and Samaria and the Israeli settlements if that's what they want to do, because it's just a matter of legislation in the Israeli Knesset. The world won't accept it, but Israel could do it. I'm not, I don't know if Netanyahu will. These guys will want to, but what's going to stop? What is Israel going to be able to say to the world today? No, we, we, we want peace? How? In what way? How? So, I mean, Netanyahu could say to Ben Gvir and Smoltrich, this is a powder keg. If you do this, this is explosive. Uh, so I know you can do it, but we actually can't do it. I mean, look, that's that's my operating assumption of where he's yeah, going to be. Am I wrong? Netanyahu, I, I've heard from politicians who have been in his governments in the past, you know, he has this shtick that he does. And, I, you know, you've been in the prime minister's office. You've seen he's got that yeah. big map up on the wall, yeah. right, you know, of, of the region. And he'll bring in a, a young Knesset member or politician who's a bit kind of off off the path and he'll sit them down and show them the map and he'll share with them some intelligence about Iran's nuclear program or Hezbollah trying to get its hands on precision guided munitions. And he'll say, listen, we, we can't rock the boat now with the Americans. I'm, I'm doing something big right now. I'm trying to ensure that we stop this or we stop that. And if you guys do something, you know, you push me too far on illegal outposts or whatever, uh, it could, it could blow that up. And he, he, he's, it's worked for him in the past. Right. Will that work with these guys? I don't know because they're they're a little different. These guys, right? And in terms of uh, you know, uh, Ben Gvir has wanted to change the status quo on the Temple Mount. That's something he's added advocated for. Can you explain what that means? Look, Ben Gvir has a, is is a frequent visitor to the Temple Mount. Right now, yeah. the Temple Mount, which Israel liberated or conquered, depending on how, what language you want to use, back in 1967, uh, the holiest site to the Jewish people um, is, is a site that's very contentious because of the fact that the Palestinians, they have the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the, and the Dome of the Rock there, but it's controlled mainly by the Waqf, which is uh, uh, under the jurisdiction of the Jordanian Hashemite Kingdom. Um, but Israel, for many years, has never really allowed Jews to pray there. It's visit. You can walk in certain areas, but you can't really pray there. In recent years, They've allowed some form of prayer, nothing with, you can't wear the talit, you can't put on the tefillin, phylacteries or anything like that, you can't blow a shofar on the Temple Mount, you know, the horns ram that we blow on on the new year of Rosh Hashanah, but you can do some sort of very kind of quiet uh, uh, prayer. Ben Gvir wants to build a synagogue there, right? Now, I mean, it, it's a different, look, I, in principle, he's right. You know, it's it's crazy that Jewish people can't pray in their holiest site in their own country. On the other hand, we do have to be realistic and practical. Doing something like that could lead to a massive conflict between Israel and the Muslim world. I don't think we we want that. So we have to walk a very delicate balancing act. And, and Ben Gvir, he's not of the diplomatic kind, right? He doesn't care for that. He cares for what his party's name is, Otsma Yehudit, Jewish power. That's what this is all about. I want to get to a couple of the other big problems Netanyahu's going to have to deal with as, as prime minister while he's managing all this, the, you know, as mentioned, Iran and, and Russia-Ukraine and broader relations uh, in the Middle East. But before I do that, I just want to get to a, just a couple more analytical points about the outcome of these elections. I think it's important to point out that Likud actually, Likud, not the whole right-wing bloc, Likud didn't do that much better in this election 
than in the last election. It got about, I was looking at the numbers, something like, in the last election, I think they got one million, Likud got one, which is 2021, 1,066,000 votes. And this election, it's about the same, maybe even a little worse. Right. So it, it, it's, it's, it's even more than that. If you look at the block that Netanyahu has, which included the ultra-Orthodox parties of United Torah Judaism and Shas, and the religious Zionist party of Smotrich and Ben-Gvir, that block as a whole got about 2,070,000 votes, more or less. The, the, the other parties, which would have, you could say to some extent are under the center-left block of Yair Lapid, the current and now outgoing prime minister, got about 2,065 Two million, sorry, and 65,000 votes. So explain how is it that they lost so big of a, just a difference of 5,000 votes. But the way it works here— So basically, like something that's like a 0.3% difference from the last election correct. to this election, and you're talking about the difference between 52 seats, was right? 54? Yeah. 50, yeah. 52 Their block seats. is about—yeah. So so 54, 5, and, and the other guys are, you know, 64. And how did they lose in such a big way? And, and, and the reason is because— BB knows how to arrange and organize his block, right? So he worked very hard to get Smutrich and Ben Gvir to merge their parties. He worked very hard to keep United Torah Judaism together. It's also made up of two. But explain why that's factions. so important. Can you just explain? We've talked about this on this podcast, but just just to refresh listeners, because the, the way it works in Israel, uh, it's a different system here. To cross the threshold and get into the Knesset you have to get 3.25% of the entire vote. So if a million people vote, right, and in this case we had about 5,000, 5 million, 5.5, 6 million people who voted, you need to get 3.25% just to make it into the Knesset. That's the, that, that's the bare minimum. If you don't get that, you're out. And all those votes go to waste. So in the case of, for example, what happened with the so there's never party, So there's something like 40 parties that are actually running. Most of those parties are just one and two man shows and they'll right. never get into the Knesset because even if they got one percent of the vote it's not enough it, it's not enough if even if they get 3.24 percent of the vote which would be the equivalent yeah. of just numerically would be the equivalent of getting north of you know three Knesset seats sorry not enough you went not from enough. being eligible for three Knesset seats to getting zero Knesset seats and that say 150,000 voters that voted for you, their votes are now completely and, wasted. And, and that gone. is, Dan, exactly what happened to the Meretz party. Meretz got about 150,000 votes. And Meretz, just, just for our listeners, is a is a party that's a long-standing party, far way on the left. Correct. And and they it was assumed they would they would play a role in a Lapid-led left of center block government that some of these smaller right parties are playing in the Netanyahu block that was you know that was part of Lapid's calculations he would have these smaller parties and what you're saying Yaakov is merits didn't meet the threshold so all those voters who would have been fine with Lapid as prime minister and certainly are hostile to the ideas of Netanyahu as prime minister their gone. votes are gone wasted gone and mean nothing and therefore uh what also happens because of the system, because it's always percentages, it's it's like it's like a it's kind of a seesaw, right? So if you have, if you lose one hundred fifty thousand votes on the left, effectively what that is is it means that the piece of pie on the right is going to be worth a lot more because they're now they got votes, their votes out of the bigger pie is more, and therefore it's going to be worth more, and it's going to translate into more seats because suddenly the whole pie became much smaller because you just cut out 150,000 votes. 
And and it's not just there. It was also the Arab parties. There used to be a joint list. They split ahead of the last election, and that's how we got Mansour Abbas, who was the head of the Ram party that joined the Lapid Bennett government. But there was still a flank that did not. They then split, that flank split into two. So you had three Arab parties that were running. One of them, Balad, also lost and didn't cross, and there went another 70,000, 80,000 votes. So altogether, and I'm not sure that Lapid could have maneuvered the Arabs the way that Bibi was able to maneuver the ultra-Orthodox, but he tried to get labor and merits to merge. He brought Mirav Michali, the head of labor, to his office, together with Zahava Galon, the head of merits. And Zahava Galon was in favor. She wanted to do it. She was ready to become oh, number two. I didn't two. know that. So the head yes. of merits was willing to merge. She was willing to merge. She recognized the threat and the and, and the potential loss. And, and just, just uh, this, this is the key. If you get these smaller parties to merge, correct, then none of them, or the ones that merge at least, will not fall under the threshold because all their votes get consolidated. So it guarantees those votes don't go to waste. That is why, I mean, Netanyahu was clever in an, in anticipating this and got these smaller right wing parties to merge. And it, it, it's 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 to the extent, Dan, that I heard one analysis which which I, i'm not a math guy so i can't i you know i can't check it but that had merits and labor merged and had balad the third of the arab parties not run separate you would have a situation right now where in the best case scenario for netanyahu it would be 60 60 or even it would be 60 to the center left and 59 to netanyahu and that would be a completely completely different ball game so really at the end you can point a finger at Merav Micheli, the leader of labor, for saying, why did you refuse that merger? I mean, you know, it's all could have, would have, should have, but but this has real life uh, consequences, definitely for people who are center-left voters. Okay, so I want to get to Lapid, where he goes from here. But before we do that, you mentioned the Ram Party, Mansour Abbas, so his significance first Arab party to join an Israeli government and take on a role in, in a very important way uh, for to in, in this current Israeli government. Uh, he, is a, is, he leads an Islamist party. Uh, I actually know him a little bit. He's pretty pretty interesting guy. Uh, how did they do? They did better this time, right? They did His better. They got, they, yeah, they got to five seats. They went up one. Um, which to an extent says that maybe his experiment of joining with the government and entering into coalition to get budgets to help advance his people and his constituents. And, that's and get resources and get resources to his communities, to the Arab That's community. what his message was. You see, his message was the Palestinian issue, which we Arab Knesset members have always been fighting for. That's important. But I have to worry about my Israeli Arab voters and my Israeli Arab residents. And, and that was the big kind of news that he came with. And it paid off for him, and he got extra votes, and he actually increased in power. By the way, he could be—I mean, he's a potential partner, right, even for a right-wing government, because he Bibi had flirted with him back ahead after the last election in 2021, although Smutrich and Ben-Gvir would not allow him to enter into a government. But him. but also, to be clear, he's different than how some of the other Arab political parties have played in Israel over the years, and that he says, Israel's a Jewish state. We can—we, as a community, right. can live in a, in a Jewish state. I'm not—he he, doesn't—he doesn't— he doesn't. His political existence is not in in you know is not adversarial to the no, to Zionism or the recognition no. of the Jewish state. He's Israel's a Jewish state. Israel's a democracy. I want to play in this democracy. I gotta I gotta work to get resources and security and the rest to my community. And I do. It's better for me to be doing that from inside the government than the outside. 
you know, I can tell you that when 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 that was happening in the beginning, when he kind of after the last election, and then in May of 2021, when there was that big Gaza operation that saw riots in mixed Arab cities, and he went to one synagogue in Lod, in the city of Lod, which had been burned, and he said, we'll help rebuild it. This was Mansour Abbas. I remember speaking with Naftali Bennett. This was before he became prime minister, and he was saying, I don't understand how this guy is still alive. Like, how are they not killing him, right? He needs 24-7 security. Uh, it was it was really it was it was an amazing moment in Israeli history to, to kind of see this type of Arab politician who wants to work together with the Jewish people and 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 Jews who wanted to work together with the Arabs, right? And now, unfortunately, I mean, I say this, you know, kind of my personal. Unfortunately, that's being thrown to the side right now, and and that that that's an unfortunate consequence. Yeah, you're Lapid. Yes. So I my impression was that he my initial impression was that he came out of this much this election much weaker because he wasn't able to engineer these mergers on the on the left the way Netanyahu had uh, engineered mediated mergers on the right and that there would be enormous backlash against him uh, which would hamper his ability to be an effective uh, leader of the opposition but you you actually think he comes out of this stronger look he he Failed to an extent. There's no question. He lost this election. He's conceded already. Um, he failed to align the block in the way that Netanyahu did to preserve every vote. But on the other hand, I think that a loss is not the worst thing for him because what it does now, merits is out of the picture. Labor is down to four seats. In a future election, it's a one-man show. Yair Lapid today is the unequivocal, the, 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 the one-man leader of the center-left bloc, and basically of the largest party. He brought Yeshatid, his party, up from 19 to 24 seats. He grew in a significant way. And, and, and that's something that he'll be able to ride to whenever the next election will take place. He'll be able to say, look, it's me against Bibi. Forget about the small parties. Now it's just about me. And that will be able to get all these merits voters and all these labor voters to ditch their small parties, potentially, throw their support behind him, and maybe grow him to become the biggest party in Israel. Where does this leave Benny Gantz, who current defense minister, who, from what I understand, uh, dis you know may hate Netanyahu, but he truly disrespects Yair Lapid. Yair so, Lapid, yes, yeah. That, that, that's they do not like each other too much. Um, Lapid and that's, Lapid that's an understatement. Yeah, but yeah. Benny Gantz right now is. Um, Someone who is definitely not happy with these results. He is the first target for Netanyahu as someone who could potentially enter the coalition and maybe come instead of Ben Gvir, right? And now, it's it's a little complicated, right? The Americans would love to see Benny Gantz come into the coalition, break his campaign promise not to sit with Netanyahu. He did it before. You remember, Dan, in 2020 when he came into the government under because of COVID-19 and an emergency government. Then Netanyahu basically tricked him and cheated him and took us to another election and didn't rotate as he had promised to do. Uh, so Benny Gantz, because of being burned once, he doesn't want, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice already, shame on me. So he doesn't want to have to get to that point. But uh, it is possible. And I, I think the Americans are going to be putting a lot of pressure on Gantz to come in and basically save the day. And let me say just one thing about Gantz. He he really is, I don't think he's a good politician. I think he ran a terrible campaign. He fought more with Lapid than he should have fought more with, with Bibi uh, to take votes. His whole thing was take votes from the right, not try to take votes within the block. But on the other hand, he's a true patriot. And you can't uh, 
you can't really doubt his sincerity. He really puts the country first, I think, to a large extent. And that's why, I, even though I think he, it would be, again, a betrayal of his voters if he were to decide to enter a Netanyahu government, I wouldn't put it past him. I think if he was, if he's late at night and he's thinking, what do I do? Do I let Ben Gvir take over? Or do I come in and try to stop that? I could see him making the decision to go for it, even with the political price. And it, and it, it addresses this need that Netanyahu's often had, right? It gets him someone Cor- to exactly. the left of him into his government. Exactly. Although, I, I do have to say, just mathematically for a moment, it's not simple. Because while Ben Gvir and Smutrich are 14, and Benny Gantz is 12, so yeah. you say if Bibi already has 64, he brings in Benny Gantz instead of Smutrich and Ben Gvir. So he's not 64, he's a coalition of 62. Not a big difference, right? The problem is that Benny Gantz is not really 12. Benny Gantz is 6. Gadi Eisenkot, the former chief of staff, and Matan Kahana, who used to be with Bennett, are two free agents. And then there's another four, which belong to Gidon Sar, the former Likudnik, who broke away from Likud, ran on his own, now the justice minister, and now merged served, with served Benny in the, served in the Netanyahu, served, Sorry, served in the Bennett-Lapid government. Correct. Gidon Sar might not go for it. Gadi Eisenkot might not go for it. So then all Benny Gantz really is six. Six is not enough to make a difference. Got it. Okay. So now let's let's go through these hot spots. Uh, based on your, based on all these political dynamics, Netanyahu has to manage, and based on your deep knowledge uh, as as an observer of Netanyahu over many years, um, w- what happens uh, with regard to Netanyahu slash Israel on Iran? Look, the policies stay the same. They never really were different, the governments. Uh, the Lapid and Bennett government, we have to say, did a good job in stopping the disastrous uh, return to the JCPOA, to the 2015 nuclear deals the Biden administration really in- initially wanted to do. They had a very good uh, dialogue with the Biden folks, uh, and they were able to do it without escalating, without getting things to blow up on the Israeli-U.S. relationship. So really hats off to them on that. Netanyahu, of course, wanted the same outcome. I don't know that he would have gone about it the same way, but his tactic might have been different. But the outcome is good for him, too. And we're going to see a continuation of that policy, right? I think that Netanyahu, of course, does not want an Iran deal. uh, And he's going to work with the administration very carefully on that. The one difference I would expect is just in kind of the tone of the way he works with Biden and the Democrats, right? We all remember how he was with Barack Obama, how he was around the Iran issue with Barack Obama. It was a very tense moment in Israeli-U.S. history and in that the history of our joint uh, shared relationship, which is of such critical importance, I think, definitely to Israel, but also to the United States. Uh, Netanyahu, It'll be interesting to see whether he's coming in as kind of, you know, a, a to appease, to, to get along, to be kind of a convenient partner, or does he want to fight a bit? And, and I think the Biden folks are a bit concerned what, what exactly they're, they got waiting for them. How does Netanyahu manage Russia, Ukraine, and does he do anything different from the current Bennett-Lapid government or Lapid-Bennett government? Again, I don't think so. I think the policies, and this is, you know, Dan, it touches on a bigger question. So what's, you know, someone could say, so Yaakov, what's the difference between these guys? And and the honest right. answer is that there's not a big difference, right? And policy. That, by the way, I try to make this point to American audiences all the time. I had to give a talk yesterday. I try to make this point. On the major issues, there's basically a, a, consensus, there's a consensus in Israeli politics. Yeah. So people think Israeli politics is so polarized. It, 
it is in a sense, but not necessarily around these big issues. No. It's polarized around figures like BB, anti BB, pro BB. People have very strong views, but on Iran, Russia, Ukraine. Yeah. No, I gave a talk also the other night, the day after the election, to a group of American, uh, actually pastors who were visiting Israel, and they were asking me about Iran. And I gave, I explained to them, and they said, "But we don't understand. It's it's the most important issue. How is there not a policy difference?" And I said. Because there just it, there isn't. Everyone kind of agrees and and sees things the same way. So on Russia, Ukraine, look, Netanyahu has always had a good relationship with Putin. He's had a good relationship with Zelensky. Will he be the guy who supplies and delivers weapons to the Ukrainians as they've been practically begging Israel to do? I don't know because ultimately he also recognizes he was the man who built the deconfliction mechanism. That has worked so well for Israel in Syria that with the Russians, because the Russians control Syria, that has allowed Israel to continue to take out Iranian targets in Syria over the last few years. Is he going to be the one who's going to throw that to 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 the side to be able to give uh, Ukraine some defense missile defense systems as they ask? I don't think so. He's always been cautious on those issues, and he's always been very careful not to rock the boat, not to turn Putin into an enemy, not to turn anyone else into an enemy. Not China, not America. I, I don't see him changing any anything too dramatic there. Last question, and then we'll let you go, because I know we're bumping up against uh, Shabbat where you are. Uh, continued normalization in the Middle East between Israel and basically the Sunni Gulf nations. Netanyahu played a key role in normalization with the Emiratis, with the Bahrainis, and other kind of Morocco. Yeah. Not in the Sunni Gulf, but... Um, Obviously, the the big prize is Saudi Arabia. That I think will take some time, but I but I think it's on a trajectory. So I've I have two reactions. Uh, I've always been struck when I talk to golf leaders, Sunni golf leaders, that they all like Netanyahu. They all thought he was the man yeah. who took it to Washington and you know to tear down the Iran deal and and do things like give an address to the joint session of Congress criticizing the the the, the foreign policy priority of a sitting. American administration. These are things these Gulf countries could never do. And they were sort of in awe that Netanyahu could do this and they rallied behind him. So in a sense, there's a there's a strength aspect kind of putting Israel on the map that they uh, partnered with and wanted to piggyback onto. On the other hand, I got to believe Netanyahu's pressures from the right, the Ben Gvir and Smoltrich pressures on issues related to Arab rights and Palestinian, the future of the Palestinian issue in Israel's backyard is going to create problems for these Arab countries. So where do you see Netanyahu taking the, the normalization campaign? Look, it'll be hard to imagine right now that with this type of coalition, Israel will be able to normalize relations with additional countries. Uh, they, because of Smotrich and Benvir's presence in the coalition and no progress and no movement and no kind of gift that Israel, fig leaf that Israel can give to, or olive branch to anything on the Palestinians, it, I don't see how the Saudis can come. I don't see anyone else can come. On the other hand, what we also have to keep in mind, Dan, and you know this better than I do, is that the Americans have played an extremely important role. And without an active American role in bringing the sides together, it's, a, it's not just going to happen on its own, right? So people ask me all the time, why aren't the Saudis normalizing relations? And I say to them, look, they could potentially, but you would need Biden to get really deep involved really deeply involved, to give something that the Saudis would want, to get them to come together. We haven't seen that kind of action by this administration in the same way that the Trump administration did it. And, you know, 
again, it's, it's a, uh, yes, I think it, a bit of criticism on my part of them, but I also, it's just not important to them like it was, for example, for the Trump folks. So uh, I don't know that we can expect much to move. And by the way, it's it's an interesting, it's an interesting criticism and question of, we're two years now after the normalization of ties between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain and, and Morocco. How come no more countries have come yet, right? And uh, And that says something about, you know, the U.S. involvement in all of it. And maybe, as you say, also, you know, kind of if nothing's going to move on the Palestinians, why would anyone else come? So I think we'll have to suffice with what we have for now, which is not a little, but don't expect any big moves. And, and to be fair, I mean, I'm critical of a lot of what the Biden administration does in foreign policy, and I do think they could have made normalization and the kind of follow on to the Abraham Accords more of a priority. But but the Saudis have made some concessions Yes, uh, it, that are, you know— I mean, we can fly over Saudi Arabia. Diplomatic recognition, That's true. right? What? Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's, there have been some positive steps. Yaakov, we'll leave it there. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, I hope you get to relax uh, over Shabbat. <laughs> That, by the way, that's the silver really lining, bothered. Dan, of this government. I say to people, even those who were upset, and there's a lot of people who are upset and worried. The silver lining is they will have a government and we just won't have another election in just a few months. Thank God for that, right? That's got to be worth something. And maybe during that time, we can all ponder what reforms the Israeli electoral system needs yeah. uh, to get out of the situation where Israel has five elections in 44 months. But as I keep pointing out, not as bad as some other countries. The Brits have had five prime ministers in seven years. You guys have only had three prime ministers right. in seven years. So, you know, by that comparison, you, your, your democracy looks, you know, healthy and smooth running. Um, okay, Yaakov, thanks again. Thank you, Dan. We'll look forward to having you back. That's our show for today. To keep up with Yaakov, you can follow him on Twitter at Yaakov Katz, Y-A-A-K-O-V-K-A-T-Z. You can also, of course, follow all his work at jpost.com, and you can order all of his books, all of which I highly recommend, at your favorite independent bookstore or at Barnes & Noble, or that e-commerce site. I don't know, I'm hearing less and less about it these days, but I think they call it Amazon. Call Me Back is produced by Lon Benatar. Until next time, I'm your host, Dan Senor. Dan Senor.